Well, hello everyone, and a massive Cade Mila Falcha. Good day, Chuck Sullis. You're all welcome to Lighthouse. My name is Jamie, and we're so glad that you are here today, especially as it is Connect Group Sunday. Uh, if you haven't been around Lighthouse, you're new, it's your first time. You, what you need to know today is that we're not a church who just come to an event on a Sunday, but we're a community of people who are on a journey of faith, trying to live out God's extraordinary purpose in our time and in our world. So I want to encourage you, as has already been said, to make sure you check out and commit to one of the many groups that we have launching this week right across our church in both locations. And of course, what's also exciting is that next Sunday is Vision Sunday, everybody. Come on, let's hear a massive round of applause for Vision Sunday. Come on, you can do better than that. We want to celebrate the fact that our church is on purpose, our church is with purpose, and our church is for purpose. And next Sunday, I'm going to be sharing some uh, updates about our Dublin location, some exciting things happening, our Navin location, and of course, our soon-to-be Dundalk location, one church, three locations, 2023. So we're super excited. So Vision Sunday is going to be a crucial time where I get to encourage you guys with all that God is doing throughout our church. Now, if you've been with us for the last few weeks, you'll know that we are in a series at the moment called Vision Express. We're talking all about the idea of vision. And, and usually on a Vision Sunday, what we express on that specific Sunday is the vision of the church. But more than just a vision for the church, I believe that God has a vision for your life. And often you see this printed or, or um, as you walked into our Dublin location, particularly you see it on the floor, this light that says, inspiring ordinary people to extraordinary purpose in Christ. That is our vision. That's why we exist. We want, we believe that God has a plan and purpose for your life. And we want you to live in it, experience it, and feel the sense of satisfaction and fulfillment from being in that extraordinary purpose. So in this series, what we're talking about really is God's vision for you. So way back in week one, we talked about purpose on purpose, this idea that we're all heading somewhere, our life is, is on a path, that pathway is taking us a certain direction, and we're going to end up somewhere, but we want to end up somewhere on purpose. Last week, we talked about intention on purpose, and that, uh, as we said, direction ultimately sets our our destination, uh, and no matter how much intentionality, how much we wish, how much we want, how much we think, how much we desire, how much we dream, those things don't actually affect our, 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 our destination. Our direction does. That's why we've been asking the question, the kind of premise, the base of the series is, what if you could envision your own future? What if, as it comes to your life and, and you know, God's purpose, what if you could somehow you know, glimpse or capture what that is for your future. And what we're saying in this series is to some degree you can when you think about the principle of the path, which we talked about in week one and which we added to last week in week two. The principle of the path to bring up speed is simply this, that direction, not intention, determines destination. Uh, the direction in which your life is going, your marriage is going, your career is going, your spirituality is going, the direction in which your general being is going will ultimately determine your destination, not your intention. You can have all these great intentions. Oh, I, I intend to be, I hope to be, I want to be, I long to be. But ultimately, the thing, the thing that allows us to envision, the thing that allows us to, to look forward and wonder where I'll be, the thing that gives us some kind of indication of our future is the direction that we are currently going in. So today in part three, the final part of this series, I want to talk to you about living on purpose. So purpose on pur purpose, intention on purpose, but then I'll tell you about what it means to live on 
purpose. Now, we've talked a lot about bad decisions, we've talked a lot about regrets, not just in this series, but throughout this year. And it's true, isn't it? Come on, I don't, I don't have to know everything about you to know that you, like me, are a human being. And you know, there's a truth that our worst decisions are often fueled by something with strong emotional appeal. Come on, it's that thing you bought, that, that, that lease you signed, that place you went, that commitment you gave, that contract you got locked into, that person you moved in with, whatever it is, some of our biggest and worst regrets are, are largely shaped by the thing that we wanted, the thing that we gained, the thing that we leased, the thing that we lived with had strong emotional appeal. And then something strange happens, and again, it's not a condemnatory statement, it's just true. It seemed to have lost its appeal. It may have lost its appeal, but the consequences of what it, of the impact of those choices in our lives continue on. Let me give you one example of one thing that was really appealing at one point to most people that's now lost its appeal. Figure A, here we go. How many remember these? Crocs. This is a great demonstration of something that for some reason at some time was an absolute craze. I mean, everyone's buying Crocs and so on and so forth. And for most people, sane people, they've lost their appeal. Now, if you're someone who's still currently wearing Crocs, understand that we love you. You're very welcome in this church, but you actually are a great representation for what we're talking about. Fads come and go, but sometimes if we're not careful, we get stuck. We get imprisoned by things that were appealing at one time that we commit to that extract a pound of flesh. And it's not just that, but also what, what appeals to us reveals to us something about us. Appealing is revealing. Because when we think about the things that draw us, things that drive us, the things that tempt us, the things that distract us, especially right now if you're a Christ follower, come on, if you're a, if you're a person of faith and you would say your life belongs to the Lord and your desire and your number one purpose in life is to fulfill His calling on your life, then the things that are appealing to you are very re revealing about where your heart is at. And for many of us, what began as a pastime, what began as like an innocent, like it's no big deal, it's, it's not going to take that much time, it's, it's, it's just, just a friend, we're just friends, you know, we're not going to, no, we're not going to commit to any kind of serious relationship. I mean, we're not, I'm not, yes, I'm spending that money, but you know what? It's, it's totally fine. It, there's no risk. I won't lose that much. Whatever it is that, we've, that, we, that was appealing to us, at first it begins as a, as a pastime, but very quickly it becomes a pathway. What we think is a moment, what we think is a place, is actually moving us in a certain direction. And so, because of this, the path to avoid, uh, the path to be avoided, or should I say, is always paved with strong emotional appeal. Usually speaking, the path that we should be trying to avoid, if we're trying to envision a better future with, with, a, with a solid marriage, a better future that involves us loving and serving, make a difference for God and His Word, a better future for us as human beings, the path, that path, the path that should be avoided to ensure we live on this path is the one that is characterized or paved with strong emotional Appeal. Come on, you know what I'm talking about. You're talking about whenever we're tempted by something, the fact that it's newer, right? Because new is great. It's faster. It's bigger. It's, it's about maybe safety. Like, you know, I've already got to have a plan for the future and plan for my kids. It's, it's maybe romance. It's desire. It's acceptance. It's attention. It's a sense of adventure. Like, I just can't settle or commit. I can't just stay in a predictable rhythm because, because I just love this sense of adventure. Again, it's not that. Like, you, you know, right? If you're not a Christ fire thinking, oh, here we go. Here's the church, you know, boring old Bill telling us all the things we can't do. Listen, I'm not saying, and I don't believe God is saying, that these things are wrong. New is not bad. Faster isn't bad. 
all these things aren't wrong. It's not that they aren't bad. It's just that eventually what we give ourselves over to now, the new, the faster, the bigger, eventually is just not enough. And what was so appealing and so intense, and it's like, oh my gosh, I can't live without this thing. It's almost like as time goes by, that effect wears off. But the consequences, the choices, the directions that we took, the, the destinations that those choices lead us to, even though it wasn't enough, it will never be enough. And what happens when we're, when we're caught in this appealing when we're caught up in this strong emotional appeal thing, is that number one, it lowers our defenses. Because I don't know if you know this, and maybe you're not really great at selling things, you don't consider yourself a very you know, successful or very able salesperson, but when it comes to selling things to yourself, you are the number one salesperson in the world. When it comes to justifying why it'll be okay, when it comes to excusing, as I talk about excusiology, you, you, you have a doctorate. We have a doctorate in excusiology. We, we're so good at talking our defenses down because we, we want, we desire, we, we, we have this, this, this connection because of strong emotional appeal. But at the same time, the unique thing happens. Number one, it lowers our defenses. But number two, it raises our defensiveness because even though we're intentionally allowing our, the, those gates to come down, to, to make way for this thing that we want, to make way for the choices that have to be made to attain that, that thing or to be in that relationship or to compromise that value. At the same time, when people we trust, when people we love, when people we admire kind of see what's really going on and try to you know, hit the warning uh, sign, try to hit this warning siren, try to set, sound an alarm, try to, try to grab our attention that maybe the path we're on is a good path, what happens? We get defensive. We're like, it's none of your business. I didn't ask your opinion. Why do you always have to comment on my choices? Who I live with, who I go out with, what I do in a friend is none of your business. But more often than not, and if you're like me, you're normal, it turns out that those defenses are usually there for a good reason, not to keep our lives boring or restricted, but to keep us on the path of destiny, making choices in the present that lead us to the future that we have, that we envision. And also, the people in our lives who speak to us about our lives aren't criticizing us because they are out to get us. It's because they love and care for us. And ultimately, God loves and cares for you too. Now, there's a thing in, in psychology called the confirmation bias. It's an actual psychological thing. And this is where we as human beings, whenever we see something, whenever we want something, whenever we, we desire something, we basically start to reinterpret facts to suit our argument. So we go to buy a car, for example, and we have a budget. We say our budget is 10,000 euro. Remember years ago, I went to buy a car and this exact thing happened. I went to buy a car, I had a budget. I'd saved the amount I needed to buy the car in cash because I was trying to be debt free. Got to the garage, that had a few models in the model I like, and the guy happened to say, oh, but did you see this new model? Did you say new? And he's like, would you like a test drive? I'm like, sure. And it was faster, and it was nicer, and beware of all the errors, you know what I'm saying? Because what happened was, was all of a sudden my head stopped working and my heart took over, and emotionally I was just married to this thing. So we do the test drive, I come back, and I'm like, oh man, it's a beautiful car, but it's beyond my budget. And then the guy, this very helpful salesperson by the way, is like, yes, that's true, you have no money, but did you know there's a thing called higher 
purchase. I'm like, hire purchase, what? It sounds amazing, you're gonna give me money, wow. Let's sign it right now. And you all know how the story ends with many, many tears. And the point is, this is a human phenomenon that when we, when, we, when we get attached strongly emotionally to something that we want, something that's appealing, we kind of, our IQ drops, we just become, that's why we often say, come on, don't we say, man, I was so stupid. Your words, not mine. We say it because in that moment, literally, our, our intelligence quotient drops. And sometimes our EQ drops because when someone says, hey, is that a good idea? We're like, get behind me. I never asked your opinion. So our IEQ drops. And this is where we make terrible choices. It was Warren Buffett, um, the philanthropist and businessman, who said, what the human being is best at doing is interpreting all new information so that their prior conclusions remain intact. In other words, as information is coming, rather than objectively processing that new information, we reinterpret to suit our argument, which leads us, what seems to be a pastime, to a pathway. For example, all of us desire to live in a house, right? And here's an example of a beautiful home up for sale right now in Ireland. And, you know, we, you go to buy a house, you think, oh man, I have a budget, I have a thing. And before you know it, we're talking, we're talking ourselves out of logic, out of rationale, out of wisdom and into foolishness. Now, I understand that a couple of years ago, maybe several years ago, this would have been a dream house. But for some of us right now, uh, here's the better description of what a dream house is in Ireland. That's right, because if I told you you could buy a shed somewhere in County Dublin for a, for, for a couple of hundred euro and live in it, most, I mean, things are just crazy right now. The situations have changed. But whatever it is, whether it's a garden shed or a mansion, the point is when we want something, we talk ourselves into it. How about a beautiful once-in-a-lifetime holiday to some exotic part of the world? I mean, we think, I, you weren't even thinking about that, but now look at that beach. Look at that water. I mean, isn't it so lovely? I mean, how many right now would love to be in that place? Or sometimes stereotypically for guys, although it's not always the case, this is more what, what's appealing to us. We see uh, a Bugatti, and we think horsepower, and we think speed, and we think flash. We think, oh my gosh, can you imagine what everyone will say and think? And then for some reason, which is a complete mystery, mystery to me, within that there's most guys would take this, but some guys would prefer one of these things. And I don't know if it's the color yellow or what it is, but for some people, that's the dream. I mean, honestly, a 1974 Volkswagen, I'm going to guess it's a Golf. What a dream, I mean, a dream come true. The point is, is that it doesn't matter what it is, it's the, it's the emotional appeal that pulls us off track. And probably the most powerful thing isn't actually a thing, it's a person. Because one of the, one of the, one of the ways that we can blow up our life quicker than, than anything else is by making poor choices about the relationships that we keep, whether it's romantic relationships or just friendships. And the truth is relationships are dynamic. They're always changing. They're always moving. They're, relationships aren't a static thing. It may feel like you have a friend or you have a boyfriend or a girlfriend or just a thing. But that thing isn't a thing. That thing is moving you in a direction. And what might seem like a pit stop, like I'm not really serious. Like I, I don't really intend to marry her. I mean, I just, I'm just feeling a need. I'm just stopping off to refuel whatever it is needs to refuel. But what seems like a pit stop ultimately becomes a pathway. What seems like, oh man, this is such a good thing. I'm going to keep this going for as long as I can, becomes a, how did I get here? How was I so stupid? And ultimately, that pathway, if we're not clued, if we're not wise, leads us to a place of hurt and regret. Now, here's the point where we're going today. So with all that, what am I saying? I'm saying that if you are distracted by what's on the path, you'll be distracted from where the path 
is taking you. When confirmation bias kicks in, when we start selling ourselves on all the reasons why we should switch off our brain and wisdom and not listen to counsel because we really want something, we have to at that point realize that when we're distracted, when we're like in Nam, we're like, oh my gosh, but with what's on the path, we stop paying attention to where the path is taking. So as we close off this series, what does it mean to live on purpose. What is, what is the path? Where is the path that God wants on? Again, if you're not a Christ, this is very important because I believe, even if you don't believe, that God made you on purpose, with purpose, and that your life has purpose on this earth. And there is a general path that all of us who have faith and put our trust in God should be on. There's obviously specifics for every individual, but generally speaking, this path of following Jesus leads us in a direction. So what we're going to do right now is turn to the book of Galatians, chapter 5. We're going to go a few verses. The Apostle Paul wrote when he tried to help the churches Galatia was a region in modern day Turkey kind of like a province like Leinster and just like we have a, we have a, you know, a few churches and simply more Paul was writing to a number of churches he had been there he spoke there live and now he's writing a letter to reinforce and remind them of the things the themes of the priorities that they should have in their world and one of them was all about direction so in verse 13 he starts off he says hey my brothers and sisters like what's up guys like don't forget you were called to be free. Now, I don't know if you've grown up with a paradigm of Christianity that is anti-freedom or comes across as, you know, the opposite of freedom. But the good news, the reason why the gospel, that's what the word gospel means, the word gospel in Greek, euangelion, is literally translated as good news. The good news of Jesus is good news because it's news that sets you free. The whole purpose of why Jesus came, we were told by John, is Jesus came to break the bondage, to break the chains, so that we could be free. Christianity is not about rules and regimen and and tradition and, 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 and all these things, these misconceptions. Christianity is about control. And judgmentalism, although that absolutely happens in the world, tragically, that is true by people who would describe themselves as Christians. But Jesus, the Christ, which makes Christians possible, he tells us he came, and the Apostle Paul and the first believers, who was not a believer, became a believer, said that we were called, God envisioned us to be free. But that freedom, we're told, has a purpose. It's for free, but it's for purpose. He says in verse 15, but do not use your freedom to indulge in the flesh. Now again, if you're a church person, you kind of get what this means. If you're brand new, you're thinking, well, what, what the heck is the flesh? Well, the word flesh in the Greek language in which this uh, letter was written is actually the word sarks, okay? And, it, and in a sense, it can be translated as your body, your flesh, like your body. But in this instance, it kind of refers almost metaphorically to the power of, how would you describe it, the power of human, human behavior, the human disposition, the human appetite that for some reason, like think about it this way, is it not interesting to you that, that, that the default mode of human beings isn't towards good? Like if we just leave human beings to do whatever the heck they want, we don't, we don't just naturally become good. Isn't it interesting? Again, this is proven true. If you ever had kids, I've had four. Like, you know, you have, to, you have to teach your kids to be generous. You have to teach your kids to be kind. You have to teach your kids to be sacrificial. But you don't have to teach them how to say mine. And I want. You don't, te- you, don't have to, you don't have to teach your kids to be self-centered, to somehow 
pick that up naturally almost as if it's like this inbuilt default mode. What Paul is saying is that there's a reason for this, and again, it probably deserves a whole series because way back in the book of Genesis, we're told where this comes from. But in our body, in our flesh, there's a, a, a propensity, a power at work within us that pulls away from others' focusedness, pulls away from an openness towards God and pulls us down and into ourselves and pulls us into selfishness. And ultimately, Jesus has come to set us free. Jesus has come to give us freedom. But the purpose of that freedom is not that we become more selfish. The purpose of that freedom, he says, rather, is to serve one another humbly in love. That when it comes to, to the freedom that God has given us, the, the pathway that he wants us to be on is a pathway of service. It's kind of sad that in the Western world particularly, it's so much of Christianity, maybe this is true for you right now in the seat, this may be challenging as I speak to you, but so much of your Christianity is not about service, but about consumerism. Not service, but consumption. You, you're, 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 you choose churches, you choose sermons, you choose books based on what you can get out of them, what they do for you. You make critical statements or about certain things, whether it's an author or a pastor or a church or a friend, based on how much they tickle your fancy, how much they, you know, fill your tank or how much they don't do those things and the truth is i'm not saying you shouldn't have a church or a pastor hopefully hey you know hopefully you like it here and we're good and, and you kind of like me because that's what we're doing here so i'm not against that but i'm saying that fundamentally although those things are, are factors they shouldn't be the foundation of our faith the foundation of our faith should be we follow jesus he is the son of god and savior of the world and he came into the world not to be served but to serve and the path of the calling, the extraordinary purpose of every single one of us in this room who is a Jesus follower is towards a type of service that is characterized in humility because of love. True Christianity isn't just believing or attending. True Christianity is living on purpose. And Paul explains this because in verse 14 he says, for the entire law, and again, that word law isn't talking about legal law, constitutional law. It, it's, it's a term that summarizes the entire Old Testament. Jews, you know, their, their Bible, if you want to call that, Jewish people, Israel people, their Bible was um, the Old Testament. And they would often summarize that to call it the law, especially the first five books of the Bible, which is called the Pentateuch, the first five books of the law. And what Paul is saying is the entire Old Testament, everything that happened from, from, from the beginning of Genesis to, last, to the last prophet is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Now this should, this, again, if you're a church person, this should be mind-blowing. Why? Because in the Old Testament, there were at least over 600 commands, 12 of the big ones you've heard of, but there's over 600 individual commands and 3,000 more interpretation and applications of those commands in the quote-unquote law. And what Paul is saying is revolutionary. He's speaking about Jesus said, the entire Old Testament, all the law, all the point of all those things was not to make people boring or make people mean or make them religious. It was to bring them to the heart of God that everything that we do for ourselves and in the world should be others focused. It should ask the question, is what I'm doing for me loving me? And is what I'm doing loving other people? Is what I'm doing honoring the heart of God? Or is what I'm doing violating his plan and purpose? Is this decision what seems like a pit stop truly just a pit stop or is it actually taking me further and further away from God's plan and perspective? Because here's the thing, none of us intended, none of us desired, none of us planned 
to be lost. We don't, like we said last week, we don't, that's not our intention, but we end up there because of choices. And ultimately, Paul is saying the entire thing can be summarized with one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. And again, this isn't Paul's uh, command. This is the command that Jesus gave to his first disciples, that we should love the Lord our God on our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that from that place, in that overflow, we should love our neighbor and if you're sitting there and you're thinking, well, who's my neighbor? Well, there's a whole parable about that Jesus told called the Good Samaritan. And ultimately, our neighbor is anyone around us who's in need. Anyone around us, they are our neighbor. And ultimately, this is, this is the basis of the Christian ethic, that we aren't supposed to be known for doctrine and dogma and cathedrals and traditions. And even though those things may have a place, that's not what we should be most known for. Our chief and primary distinctive in the world and this is what Jesus said if you agree with it then go argue with Jesus should be our love for one another if you're a Christ follower people in your workplace know you're a Christ it shouldn't be because of your dogmatism it should be because of your love and service in that workplace if people online know you're a Christ follower online it should be because they see grace and mercy and humility in what you post in what you type in how you talk about other people, in your priorities, in how you, in how you approach difficult situations, in how you respond to offense. Because we're all offended. It's so easy, isn't it, when we're offended to, to want to defend ourselves and to want to crush the other person. But what does love look like online in the comment section? What does love look like when you're posting something? What does love look like when someone's eating your sandwich at work? What does love look like when you find yourself being falsely accused? and blame for something you did not do. Now the truth is, this is really hard. Even though it's amazing that the whole thing is summarized to one command, how do you even begin to do this? Like if you, again, we could spend a whole series just taught us one command, like it's massive. And we're human and we have this thing called the sarks, remember the flesh, like this tension within us. Like how do we even begin to really follow Jesus in this way? And that's where Paul is going. We cannot do this by ourselves. We cannot live out our vision. We cannot walk on the path of extraordinary purpose just by being good and following rules. We need help. This is why when Jesus ascended to heaven, he said he's going to give us the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit isn't some weird ghostly person. The Holy Spirit is God in us. If you're a Christ follower, if you're a Christian, if you put your faith in Jesus, then the Holy Spirit lives in you. God is in you. If you're not a Christ follower, you should want the Spirit in you because He's a Spirit of wisdom and He's a Spirit of mercy and He's a Spirit of strength and He, and he gives us resources. Like just this morning, I was, I was praying my kids in the car and one of my kids, his prayer was, you know, he's like, thank you, Lord, for this day and da 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 and he goes, and, and please, 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 Move me from where I'm sitting because I can't stand the person I'm sitting beside. And of course, I'm driving, listening. This is his prayer. And so he gets it all out, and I'm like, okay, cool. I said to him, I said, son, maybe, maybe a better way of praying is, God, give me the patience and mercy and kindness I need to be a good neighbor to my neighbor. And of course, he's like, What? Like, are you cr- you're not even, I, there's no way I can do that. Said, That's the point. You can't do it. But the Holy Spirit in you can give you resource you don't have to accomplish things you can't do 
by yourself. This is why the Apostle Paul continues in verse 16 and says, so, so I say, so because of this, in conclusion, I say, walk by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit. Like, like figure out the leading of God. And again, you know, what, what, what does it look like? It's not like we have a physical representation, a manifestation of a ghost that we follow on. It's this internal homing system that I talked about in week one, this internal beacon that something, when the Holy Spirit lives in you, it's almost like a gentle nudge. Like someone's like saying, hey, is that the right idea? Hey, think about this. What about that person? You know, as you're sitting there and you're about to eat your sandwich and all of a sudden something says to you, look, look at that homeless person. Like, like maybe half your sandwich, maybe a better investment of that half sandwich is to bless that person. Like it's just that, that, that voice within us that's always calling us away from the flesh and towards a higher ideal. And that higher ideal isn't just an ideology, it's a person, and that person is God the Father. Now you may think it's just good morality. Listen, good morality doesn't happen naturally. We've already covered that. Good morality is something you have to work hard on. But this internal desire to do what's right, that comes from the Spirit. And we have a choice, don't we? To either listen and to walk in tandem. That word literally means like a song. It means to walk in rhythm, to walk in cadence. Like, like when you're walking with someone, or you're holding hands, or you're, or you're dancing. It's like, it's like if, if I'm dancing to a different rhythm, if I'm dancing at a different speed, if I'm doing different foot movements, we're not going to be dancing together. It's going to be a train wreck. But if I can figure out, there's always a lead partner when you're dancing. If I can figure out where the lead is going, what the rhythm is, where the steps are, and all of a sudden this beautiful rhythmic thing happens where we're dancing in unity, where something happens, where we, where we accomplish something together that we can't do ourselves. And that's what Paul is saying when we dance, when we, when we find the rhythm of God, we can hear his voice, the lead of his Holy Spirit and walk with him, that's how not only do we begin to love people around us because he gives us the resource and he gives us the wisdom, but also he says in verse 16, it's how we avoid gratifying the desires of the flesh. Because again, let's just go back here for a second, time out. Like we're dancing with the Holy Spirit, it's wonderful. But at the same time, we still live in a flesh, right? We still have a body. So even though you may be a Christian or a Christ follower, even though you put your faith in Jesus, even though the Holy Spirit filled your life, there still is this power at work within you called the flesh. And it always wants what is contrary to the Spirit. It always wants what is opposite. Verse 17, Paul says, For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit desires what is contrary to the flesh. Why? Because the Spirit, the spirit is all about selflessness. Whereas the flesh is all about selfishness. The Spirit leads us away from us towards an outward focus. How do I love people around me? Not just in general, because your definition of love could be different to mine. But how do I love them just as God in Christ loves me? And the Spirit isn't just like a conscience thing, like right and wrong. The Spirit ultimately helps us to desire, helps us to want what is good and noble, but what is ultimately God's plan and purpose for us. Because you don't know, I don't know the way to the future, but here's what I said the whole way through COVID. The Holy Spirit knows the way to the future. If we can just follow His voice, if we can follow His, if we can get in rhythm with Him, we don't have to worry about the outcome because the outcome will take care of itself. But understand, there's a battle. It says in Paul continues, there's a conflict. Uh, these two things are in conflict with each other so that you do not do whatever you want to do, which, if, by the way, if you're a Christ, you wonder, why is this so hard? Like, why do I try to do my best, but keep 
tripping up, making mistakes. It's because this flesh is a real thing and it desires what is contrary to the Spirit. It puts us in difficult scenarios. But he says, if we're led by the Spirit, if we continue to listen, to lean in, to lock arms with, to walk in unison with the Spirit, if we, if we, are, if we allow ourselves to be led by the Spirit, watch this, he says, you are not under the law. And there's a whole thing here we could go into again in another series. But ultimately, when we put our trust in Jesus, when we allow our, when we submit, when we allow, that's why one of the reasons why, by the way, maybe you're hearing one, why do, we, why do people raise their hands in the air when we're singing? One of the reasons why is because we're kind of saying to God, like, we surrender. Like, it may seem strange, it may seem odd, it kind of is. But ultimately, what we're acknowledging in that moment is, I am not God, you are, and I thank God I'm not and you are. And whatever I am, I give to you. And whatever you have, I ask you to me so I can live my life for your glory. That's what we're doing with your hand, we're saying, I surrender. When we do that, we're saying, I don't want to try to be a good person and fulfill or live up to all these commands because you can't. I want to put my trust in your spirit. Now, Paul continues in great detail. I don't have time to get into all of it, but he kind of lists then, well, what, what are, give me some evidence, right? Because so much like that, we want some evidence. Okay, so that's a great principle, idea, truth, if you want to call it. But give me some evidence. He said, well, well, the acts of the flesh are obviously, list, list all these things you can read yourself later on. And when you go through it, you see, yeah, selfish, 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 selfish. And some of these things our culture celebrates. Some of these things our culture does. But the point is, ultimately speaking, we know when we're on the receiving end of envy, or greed, or whatever it is that's listed. Like, we don't feel good. The other person may get what they want, but always at the cost of hurting someone else. An others-centered love, a spirit kind of love, does not seek to hurt, or take from, or offend, or accomplish at the cost of stepping on other people. An others-centered love, a love like Jesus, seeks to maintain, like ultimately in our culture, there's a lot of things that our culture believes right now that we don't believe, and it's not easy, and it's not popular, but we believe it to be true. Just because I don't agree with someone's choice about their sexuality, or how to spend their money, or even their ethic, doesn't mean I have to give up what I believe. I can love them. And if you're here, you're not a Christ follower, and you don't agree, I love you. And I respect you, but on certain things, I respectfully disagree with you because my worldview is not shaped by what I think or what I, what I believe by itself. I have chosen to put my trust in Jesus, not to walk in the acts of the flesh, but to walk in the Spirit. And Paul goes a step further, verse 21. He adds a warning. He said, I warn you, as I did, like, you, like I said, he was there in person. So for us, for you, maybe you're your brand new, and this is your first time hearing it. Understand that Paul knew these people. He had been there, so there was a relationship. And you know when you, when you, when you have a relationship with someone, you can say things to someone when you're close to them that you can't really say to strangers. You, you just have a degree of honesty. There's a degree of candor that you know the person's heart for you, right? So you, you, you accept that from a person you know and love, but you wouldn't take them as a stranger. Well, Paul is writing to friends here. So we're reading it as strangers, but Paul is writing to friends. And he says, I warn you as I did before, that those who live like this, those who live like, not believe like this, not think like this, not intend like this, but those who choose to live on the pathway of the flesh, those who make their whole lives about gratifying and gaining whatever it is they want to gratify and gain for their own sake, for their own benefit, at the cost of everybody. Even though they may say they're morally good people, even though they may attend church regularly and read their Bible and call themselves a Christian. Those who live like this, God can see the full spectrum of our life, will not inherit the kingdom 
of God. Now again, that's shocking because we're like in a culture where, well, you know what, if I want something, I should just have it. Well, good for you. That's not, I don't, healthy, I think it's healthy, and it's not right. Ultimately, Jesus said, anyone can, can inherit the kingdom of God. But the way we do so is by putting our trust in him. And the way that trust is made evident, the way that trust is expressed, to keep the theme of our series, is that we walk in step with the Spirit. And by walking in step with the Spirit, we produce the fruit. We pro- that there's something produced, something that's created as we keep in step with him. So how do I know if I'm walking in step with the Spirit, you ask? Well, Paul answered that question in verse 22. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit, because something is created. And again, I'm going to give you a list, but he said fruit singular. He didn't say the fruits. He said the fruit singular spirit is, and he gives the list. What's he saying? He said the fruit of the spirit, number one, is love. The fruit of the spirit is love. And from love comes joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Now again, Maybe you're thinking, that, that's, that's fine, but like, I mean, can I not live with the Sarks and do what I want and be? Well, again, appeal to your own, your own, your own experience as a human being. Like, when you're walking in the flesh, isn't that what, we com- isn't that what causes broken hearts? Isn't that what causes betrayal? Isn't that what causes regrets? That people who we trusted, people that we loved, people who we, we gave ourselves over to ultimately weren't on a path of the Spirit, they're on a path of the flesh, and they hurt us because they were doing the things that Paul talks about in that verse. But how many of us, let's be honest, how many of you ever complained and said, you know what, Pastor Jamie, I help. My husband is too full of joy. I can't get that guy to shut up. Like, I just want him to have a bad day. But he's so positive, so generous. I mean, every time I try to get him to argue, he's so patient. How many people, husbands said, oh, my wife is just too faithful. Like, oh my goodness. She goes out on these business trips and I just like trust her so much. Like, I don't know what to do. She's just, she's just like so faithful. How many of his parents have like complained? Like, my kids, I just were in the car and we're driving. They're just too gentle. They're just too gentle and they're too peaceful. It's like, like, it's something wrong with my kids. Like, they, like, they, like it's, just, it's, it's a problem for me that my kids are these things. The truth is, we never complain about those things. Those are the things we complain, wish we had. And those are things that are produced naturally when we are filled with the love of God because we walk in step with the Spirit. Does it mean that if you're a Christ for every single day will be perfectly characterized? Of course not. Because walking with the Spirit is a choice. It's a choice that requires wisdom. It's a choice that requires us to, to, to not give in to the strong emotional appeal of what our sarks, our flesh desires, even sometimes off-putting the instant gratification because we know in the long run that keeping in the step of the Spirit is actually keeping us on the pathway towards extraordinary purpose. This is also why, again, if you're here and you're not a cross follower, this is why you should consider becoming one. Because being a Christ follower is not about adhering to tradition or going to religious steps. Being a Christ follower means you follow Jesus, you keep in step with his Holy Spirit, and you produce these characteristics. Now, come on, be honest with me if you're not a Christ follower. Like, would your marriage, if you're married, be better or worse off if you were like this? I mean, would your workplace be better off if this is what you're bringing? Would your life, would the world be better or worse off if these were the things that were truly produced because Jesus' followers love God and love their neighbor. 
I don't know what pushbacks you have, but maybe today's the day you reconsider them because maybe the reason why you push back is because you thought being a Jesus follower was something it's not. This is what it is according to Paul and according to Jesus. And my heart as your pastor is I want this, I want this to be our billboard. I want this to be our Instagram post. I want people to talk about our church, not because whatever it is people say about us being whatever. I would say, man, those people are so joyful, so generous, so patient, so good, so kind so characterized by a love that isn't feeling-based, but is service-based. That's why we all serve. That's why it's amazing. Dream Team, do what they do because we want to love you and love this country. And we demonstrate true service. Paul concludes, he says, well, so what's our response? He says, well, against such things, there is no law. When we walk, there's nothing more powerful, nothing more significant, nothing more important in God's economy, if I can say it like that, than us walking with the Spirit and producing the fruit of love, which manifests it in joy, peace, patience, and all those things you mentioned. It was Neil T. Anderson, the creator of um, Living of Christ, said, being filled and led by the Spirit may take you places you never planned because you the strong emotional appeal. Maybe pulling us this way, like, oh man, I want this, or I want her, or I want him, or I want to go there. It may pull us in a certain direction, but when we choose to cut off the voice of the sarks and trust in the Spirit, it may take us places we never planned, but, watch this, there's a promise. The will of God will never lead you where the grace of God cannot keep you. What's he saying? He said that when we trust in God, when we put our trust in the Spirit, when we choose to not give in to the flesh, but trust and walk and keep in step with the Spirit, God will give us a grace that we know not of, that we don't even have, a power, a resource, an ability to overcome every single thing on that pathway so that we can walk in our extraordinary purpose. So as we conclude and the band come, here's my question. Have you become so enamored? Have you been captivated by something that's so appealing is your flesh screaming for him her it they them that place that thing so much someone or something on your path that you have failed to recognize where the path you're on is taking you right now it might be a certain job right now it might be locked into a certain agreement contract lease right now it might be a reason why you're in debt right now maybe the reason why you're in a relationship, you don't want to be in. Whatever it is, how you, have you become so enamored with something or someone that your path, the path you're on, you fail to recognize where it is taking you? Listen to me. God has better. Listen to me. We want better for you. I want better for you. I want better for my kids. I want better for everybody. So the question is, what do we do? And the answer is, we say every single week, is we to make a choice to live in a different direction. You see, we've been asking the question of the series, can you envision your own future? And the answer is yes, you can envision your own future. Which you go, well, how? Well, we've explained to you for the last weeks because the prince of the path guarantees that the direction you're on, the direction you're going, not the intention you have, will determine your destination. The direction your life is going, it may feel like a diversion, but it's not a diversion, it's a destination. It may seem like uh, three months, but it'll quickly become three years. The direction that you are going ultimately determines your 
destination. We talk about week one, wisdom, that we need wisdom. And wisdom is, wisdom, one of the ways wisdom can be defined is that the past is connected to the present and is a good predictor of the future. Ultimately, as we said, we are all, you are, I am, we're all going to end up somewhere in life. Your life will come to a point to be fulfilled. What is your life now will be your legacy later, what you are thinking about now. Your kids will talk about later. You're going to end up somewhere in life. It's just a matter of you're going to end up somewhere on purpose and with purpose. And I'm sorry, Jesus didn't offer us a quick fix. He didn't offer us a quick help. But what he did do was he invited us to follow him. And Jesus is inviting you, whether you're a Christ follower or not, to follow. Maybe you've been a person of faith, maybe you've grew up in church, but you know in your heart you're not living on the path that he's called you. Today is the day, he's a strong biblical term, for you to repent. And that word repent means to change, turn your, change your mind, turn around, to stop living on that path and live in a different direction. Maybe you're not a Christ follower and you've been pushing back and it's not your thing because of all this nonsense that isn't even really real because I've just explained to you what it means. And God and Jesus is inviting you right now, forget all that nonsense, to trust him. Even for a while, even to give it a shot and just follow him. To, to listen, to ask him for his Holy Spirit and to keep in step with him. Whether we're here a long time or here a short time, Jesus invites us to a new direction. And that direction is one that is spirit-led and spirit-powered, that one is one that's others-focused and for the glory of God. And ultimately, what may seem like service and patience and, and kindness and, and generosity now is actually a pathway to our extraordinary purpose. So as I, as I pray, I want to invite you to stand. We're going to pray. As I pray, I want to encourage you, we close the series, we get ready for Vision Sunday next week. I want, I want to draw a line in the sand and say, hey, join me. Come on, let's all of us together as a community of faith make a choice, a decision today, that from this day I am going to live in a different direction. I am going to live dependent on the Spirit, leading into Him, into His voice, living for God, living a life that is characterized by a love of God that is demonstrated as a love for others. Let's pray. So Father, I thank you for this series. I thank you, Lord, that in these messages, oh my gosh, you've challenged us so much. There's so many things in there just rattle us and shake us and challenge us. But I know, God, just like the voices around us that love us and are for us, Lord, what greater voice is there in the world that loves us and is for us than your voice? And you want what's best for us. You want us to live on the right path. And God, I pray, give us wisdom today. Give us wisdom to really assess, to take stock, to take in, to, to really ask the hard questions about the direction of our life and where we find ourselves right now pointed in a direction we don't want to go, where we find ourselves giving in to the flesh because of strong, the strong emotional appeal, because of the allure of status and of, and of, of, of affirmation and things. I pray God, help us to break, set us free from those things that we could live according to your spirit. And I ask you, God, right now, boldly, for every single person here, that as we trust you, as we lean to you, as we choose to follow you again, or for the first time, I pray, God, direct us on the path of your extraordinary purpose so that what right now is our life could one day be a legacy that inspires our kids and grandkids. And ultimately, God, that we can live fulfilled lives, that we can live a life that is 
There's a sense of peace because we know that we, in our generation, did everything you've called us to do. So I pray, God, as we go into this song, speak to us and lead us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.